Welcome back everybody to Special Education Information sponsored by Touching Success. Today our companions are Sterling, my African Grey. He sometimes likes to join in on the conversation. So that's what you're hearing in the background. And my name is Joy and here we go. Today I want to talk about the different vocabulary words you will run into inside of Special Ed. It's something that teachers don't mean to use and don't mean to leave people out with. It's just when you spent two, three years studying about the different terminology, you just use it without really thinking too much about it. And then you get out into the world and the same thing happens as a teacher is we use a lot of these acronyms or just general vocabulary words and we know what we mean. But I think sometimes we don't stop and consider that the others around us know what we mean. So the first piece of advice I'm going to give you is that if we start using vocabulary words or acronyms that you're not sure about, please stop us and ask us to explain. I don't think it's a conscious effort at all on anybody's part to try and leave somebody out or talk some secret language that other people can't follow. There are three parts of special ed law, A, B, and C. I'm not gonna touch upon A, not at this time, but I will be talking about B and C. B is where your IEP law comes from. IEP serves children from three to 21 years of age. And then you have C, which is IFSP, and stands for Individual Family Service Plan. That's for infants and toddlers with different disabilities that qualify for services. And then as a result, they get services to help them prepare for going into a school environment. An IFSP is designed to blend straight into an IEP. It's zero to two years old. And so by the time the child has a third birthday, that child needs to be put onto an IEP at that point. The few times I've been involved with an IFSP going into an IEP, it really wasn't all that difficult or anything to worry about. It was just making sure that everything was in place for when the kid hit preschool. And then again, when it was time for them to go to a regular school. Now, some of the information I am taking and sharing with you comes again from the book Rights Laws Idea 2004. It really is a good resource for anybody who has children involved either in the classroom, their own child, even a friend's child. It's a good resource to have. So part B, so inside of IDEA is part B of the law. And it seems to kind of make up the majority of special ed law or is at least the one we refer back to the most often as teachers. So there's several steps to get onto an IEP, which I cover earlier in the another broadcast. And a child can also be referred or another staff and or a parent can refer a child towards getting an IEP in place. Depending on the disability, something like dyslexia, dyscalculia, things along those lines, Usually they won't jump straight into an IEP or an IEP process. 
usually they'll do what we call an RTI, which is response to intervention. If the RTI or special support services, usually through a resource room teacher, if that works and the child's making progress, then they just stay on the RTI program. If it doesn't work, they might try another RTI to see if it just needed to be a different type. But sometimes it just doesn't work out. It could be that a smaller ratio for reading or and or for math just didn't quite cut it for the kid or they just need more support and that's okay. And it's at that point we start looking at the IEP to see if that would be a better choice for the kid. At that point, the kid gets to go through a whole bunch of testing. It's usually done very well by people who do the testing because it's part of our training is to be able to work with children of all ages and test them throughout that. And it could be school psychologists. It could be related to their vision. It could be any number of things that the children might need for getting into special ed support services. Sometimes we decide that a child doesn't need so much a strong support for special education so much as they need what we call a 504. 504 is not special ed, but it is consistent with providing materials and support, basic support of special ed. So maybe they need a laptop because their spelling is just so bad that the teacher can't understand it, but the stories that the child produces are really good. Or maybe the child has autism and they just need like a piece of Velcro under the edge of the seat that they can play with. So any number of things can go on to a 504. But it is not the same thing as an IEP. The other advantage of a 504 is that it follows them through the school years and it follows them into college. And so they usually just have to walk in with their paper that has the 504 on it and then the Student Disability Resource Center can help set them up with what they need to be successful in their school environment. All right, I'm gonna run through this last little bit a little bit quickly because it's stuff that I've covered in the past. Parents' rights. They're often ignored by everyone. They're often not read by anyone because they're found to be cumbersome, small print, many pages, and usually they get it just before the IEP meeting instead of the 10 or 15 days that they're supposed to be getting it. And so they usually don't know what their rights are when they go into an IEP. And it always surprises me in a good way when I run into parents that know what those parents' rights are and they use them. They know what they are doing. I think that's pretty cool. Then you have an annual. The annual is a yearly meeting for an IEP and it changes being made to it. How well they did or did not do on their current one. You may not repeat the same IEP goal as the one that you have used for the year prior. You must change it. It could be a small change, such as instead of it being five times a day, they will wash their hands. It has to be six times a day they wash their hands using soap. So you may not repeat the same IEP goal. And I see that happen over and over again. And it just watch it because if you guys get audited 
that's going to be something they notice. All right, next comes the triannual. And the triannual is a three-year review of the disability, growth on IEPs, reassessment in all relative areas to the child's disability, and reports come out of these. Sometimes those reports are 10 pages long. And the results of all of it are reviewed at the meeting, and any major changes get done during that meeting. So do they still qualify for special ed services? Is a 504 better for them? Those are some things that you'll look at at a triannual. Okay, case manager. Case managers are a little confusing. And I think part of it is, is that they are different per school or per school district. The district that I worked in had a case manager for every so many schools. And it became confusing for me in the beginning because I didn't know which case manager I should go to for which kid, for which school. And that became a kind of a nightmare in a sense, trying to figure out who's doing what, when, where, etc. But I do think the general feeling and responsibilities of case managers tends to be the same that I've seen. Uh, they help with the difficult to resolve situations. Say you have a family who wants their child to learn Spanish as part of the IEP, which the IEP would not be responsible for, but the parents are refusing to sign the paperwork all because of that particular hangup. Well, then the case manager might come in and interact with the family and interact with the staff to try to come up with a compromise on that particular issue. They're the first person that I would go to for uh, technical issues, uh, issues to do with teachers that I might be having. So they primarily though, their primary job is to represent the district. They're not there to represent the parents, they're there to represent the districts. You have to remember that. During a triannual and an annual IEP, Services are recommended, and those services can range a little bit wide. So I'm going to just go through and read them off. There's no need to kind of go through what they each do. So services provided at school is an OT, which is occupational therapist, a PT, physical therapist, a TVI, or a teacher of the visually impaired, HHI, Hard of Hearing Intervention, SLT, Speech and Language Therapist, and then you have your resource room teachers, your aides, your nurses, and so on, and then your SLDs, which is Spe Speech and Language Disability, and all these people who come into your children's lives to work with your children, like the TVI or the OT, are there and they are specially trained to work with children and teach them the skills that they need that fall into their specialty. Another part of that is the question, is always the question is direct services, which is you're working with the child. You often will pull them out of class, go to another room and work with that child. Or you have consult which is where you interact mostly just with the adults that the children interact with, such as the aide, the teacher, another therapist. It all kind of depends on the child's needs. 
And what I always would set it up for would be both consult and direct service. That way I can see how the child is doing, but I can also spend some time working with another adult and doing what I recommend. As part of working with children inside of a school district is that you have to have something called working in compliance. And what compliance is, is basically you put in the IEP that you're going to work with the child for 20 minutes twice a week. That means you're going to work with the child twice a week for 20 minutes, period. If you do not, then the child falls out of compliance. When a child falls out of compliance, you hear about it from your supervisor and the case manager because you're not doing what you said you would be doing in the IEP. If a school gets audited over IEP time and other things, and they catch that the teacher who's supposed to be working with the kid is not in compliance, they can get into some pretty big trouble. So it's something you really want to work on trying to be in compliance with. But I also understand that your caseload might be so insane, you just can't get to all of them and you will be out of compliance on some kids. And that happened to me and I really disliked it because I tend to be a perfectionist on things and I want things to go well for the kids, for uh, the family, for the school. I just wanted things to kind of run well. And instead I was getting calls, what is this kid out of compliance for? How come this hasn't been taken care of? We need you to make sure to catch up and things like that. But when your caseload is very, very heavy, that's very, very difficult to do. I did have the pleasure, though, one of the schools I worked for where they came in and they did an audit and we were 90% in compliance. And from what I understood, I was a new teacher. From what I understood, that was a huge number. That was fantastic. So we had a party and I thought that was fantastic. And we worked really, really hard as a group to try to stay in compliance. And one of the things that they would do is we'd have a day off as specialists and sit down around the copy machine because we always needed that. And we would go through our files and we would make sure everything was lined up the way they should have been, filed the way they should have been, and our notes taken and filed and there should have been, I mean, just everything that the supervisor could think of to put us in compliance. And I don't think he knew that we were being audited. He may have, but I don't think he did. I think this was just something he did because he felt it was the right thing to do. And it was, and it paid off. All right, next one, least restrictive environment. I have covered this one in the past pretty thoroughly, so I'm not going to hang around on this too, too long. But basically, it's making sure that the child is in the best placement for their skill level as can be given and provided by the district. Usually the district has what we call self-contained classroom. That's a classroom where the kids stay in the room the whole day. They get taught by a few aides with a teacher's guidance. They actually have self-contained schools too. And those schools are where the primary disability is what gets them into that school. They have mod severe kids. These are kids that some of them are functioning okay and then all the way to the kids that are really, really severe. They need a lot of support from 
aides and a teacher and anybody who's willing to come in and volunteer. Those kiddos are pretty involved kiddos. And then you have mild, moderate. Those kids, sometimes some of them will actually go into other classes and share the education time. I knew one, he loved social studies. So he would go to social studies with his grade level and he did really well. And I was quite impressed with how well he did. Then you have the resource room, which is basically where kids will go and work on the reading or their math skills or anything like that, but they don't need to be in a classroom that that's all it is. So they're in a mainstream classroom. Mainstream classroom basically is a classroom where the kids are high functioning. They get along well with each other for one. They, they just, they do okay. And then in one of the schools that I worked at, we had one called MDSSI. They don't use that in the state that I live in now, but that was multiply disabled severe sensory impairment. And basically any kid that had a visual impairment and or or deaf and was maybe wheelchair around or or not able to talk well, things along those lines. And these kiddos would go into an MDSSI class. And lastly, we have reverse mainstream, which is sort of what that one kid did, where he came into the classroom for certain subjects, and then he went back to his normal classroom. Now, the trick to this is LRE, least restrictive environment, does not mean that the child is getting to go to the best possible education in the area you live in. They get what the district can provide the best of for that child. So it's what the district can provide, not what the area or the county can provide. Okay, for just a little thing here, I'm going to throw this in since we've talked about some of the teachers in the classrooms. Teachers who teach in these areas, the different self-contained classroom, the mod severe, and so on, they have to go through training to be able to get there. And California, for one, does it kind of in an interesting way. They have two levels that you have to get to. Level one, which you get after your bachelor's degree, and then five years, you have level two, and then you're good to go. Except then another year, maybe it's two more years, they can get their master's degree. Another state that I've worked in, it was you get your master's degree and part of that process was also getting your teaching credential. You had like one test to take on top of the test you took for the master's degree at the university. So in general, teachers do know what they are doing and what is going on. And I'm not saying all of them do. I have run into teachers where... I kind of come out and scratching my head, like, why did they go into teaching in the first place if they're going to, I don't know, complain the whole time? Another important part of IEP is FAPE, F-A-P-E, FAPE, and it stands for Free and Appropriate Education, and that means that children with disabilities are one of the only groups of people in the States that get an education that is free no matter the situation. So I guess it is if the kid would be charged to go to a public school, 
They can't charge these kids. I need to look into this more. As I am speaking, I am thinking maybe I don't understand this as well as I should. Next comes the ITP, and that is Individual Transition Plan. And this transition plan kind of starts about the age of 14. You start kind of looking at it. You get ideas. You kind of start writing it up a little bit at a time. But by the time they're 16, it needs to be completely set up and ready to go. And the child, if at all possible, needs to be involved in this process because it's their life that you're making up for them. Now, some kids, they do need to have a lot more support and a lot more help. So those kids may not necessarily be as involved, but I still think they have the right to say something like, oh, I'd like to be... Uh, somebody who helps stock shelves at the office, or I'd like to program computers, something along those lines. I think they have the right to do that. I think they have the right to say that. And this plan, this ITP plan, goes with them until their 22nd birthday. Because when they turn 22, the day they turn 22, their education with special education stops. Next comes the HIPAA form or permission to release. A child cannot have their information given to anybody on the school campus or anybody anywhere without a HIPAA form put into place. If that form is not signed, then the teacher cannot get the information or the school psychologist cannot get the information from the doctor. It's very, very frustrating when you're in the middle of writing a 60-day report and you need to talk to the doctor about something and you can't because the family hasn't signed the HIPAA form. So if you're given a HIPAA form to sign, especially around a triannual time, please sign it and send it back. The teacher or the school psychologist, the OTPT, they're only looking for information related to their area of expertise. And it's not something they're going to use against the child. Next are CB eyes or community-based instruction. I love CVIs. I love planning them out. I love taking the kids on them. I love how happy the kids are. I love getting the pictures of the kids doing it. I love the lessons we've planned out and they can get. CBI has got to be one of the best things out there for educating students and If you have that opportunity as a teacher to take your kids out on CBIs, please do so. It's kind of hard with the planning. It's kind of a challenge getting the finances for it, but but do it if at all possible. It's just fantastic, and the kids absolutely, absolutely love it. And they get to see that the stuff they're learning in the classroom has real-world meaning. So if you do a lot of money work in your classroom, then they're just like, oh, it's these pieces of paper, big deal. But then they get out there in the real world and they're like, no, I need the pieces of paper to buy the the hair tie that I want or to pay for new shoes or whatever the child happens to be looking at. It's a fantastic way of teaching kids. It just really, really is. So then it's LI, low incidence disability. So some kids have disability that few others have. Like there's learning disabilities, which are a little more common than than, um, 
like blindness or deafness. So those are called low incident disabilities. And it's just something to be aware of because the money is shared and the money that comes through is very important to have. And IEP, Individual Education Plan, you should know that. Okay, consists of goals for, that are aligned to state standards, team members that are helping to write those and team members to support the teachers. There are plenty of team members for going to an IEP. You have the specialist, the teacher, the district representative, the student, the family. Uh, it's for ages between three and 21. Uh, and if it becomes problematic, the program director then jumps in. If it does not have any problems, then the case manager handles all parts of the IEP. And so that is the review and maybe some new words and concepts of IDEA acronyms and vocabulary. I hope they made sense. I hope that it helps you in your abilities to advocate for your child. And I wish you well. Have a great afternoon. <music>